Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. This is the last day of April, Friday, April 30th, 2021. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary with me as always. Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. So just before we uh, uh, started to tape this, I had on the Today Show, and uh, there was an interview or a snippet of part of an interview with President Biden uh, by Craig Melvin. And uh, I came in sort of in the middle, but so I don't know what the precipitating question was, but it had something to do with masking. And Biden said to Melvin, look, look at us, we're sitting here. We're not wearing masks. We're both vaccinated. We're not wearing masks. But, and the camera pulls back, and they're sitting, you know, like, I don't know, 80 feet apart. Let's say it's six. It was way more than six. He's like, but we're here. We're six feet apart. And, you know, we're doing this because it's just a little bit of prudence. And come on, man. It's a patriotic duty. So, the President of the United States, yes, is indoors with Craig Melvin. He is vaccinated. Craig Melvin is vaccinated. According to guidance, uh, they are well with their, they are, they are uh, well, well more than six feet apart. Um, what does it mean that it's a patriotic duty for him to be shown? Uh, maskless uh, to be sh- to go about your life and everybody else going about their lives living as though they are not vaccinated. That, can, that can I actually answer this? You a, you you can a, if you do it quickly because we need to okay. go on to Abe's great example that will be the secondary example of what we're talking sure. about. Sure, um, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, CDC director, people like Zainab Defecki in the Atlantic, and others um, now say that. It is not a responsibility on the part of the vaccinated to you know, avoid infecting other people because the likelihood that you'll uh, get this disease much less transmitted is very low. The, the duty, your responsibility now is to present an example that ensures that other people won't unmask. So you have no scientific responsibility to do this. Your responsibility as a citizen now is to model good behavior and good behavior means masking at all times, everywhere, all the time, outside, inside, no matter what you're doing, as long as you're on camera or other people can see you because you have to be this model of preferred social behavior and the preferred social behavior right now is to mask. Okay, so it's a patriotic duty, man. Abe, remind us of another occasion on which Biden used the same language. When you sent that uh, text to us, I was reminded that in 2008, when Biden was the uh, Democratic uh, vice presidential um, candidate, only candidate then, um, he said that uh, paying higher taxes is patriotic. Yeah, that was his justification. So, um, yeah, so raising taxes on the rich. So let's pull back and think about the use of the word patriotic by Biden specifically, but, but what, what it represents sort of rhetorically. 
right? Patriotism is the condition of love of country, right? That's, it's a descriptor. You're describing the condition, the emotion of love of country is called patriotism. Um, Patriotism, therefore, doesn't really have to have a cause. It doesn't have to have an animating, originating force. It is a it is a thing in itself. It is actually quite an entirely natural condition to love the place you're from. It's sort of like hardwired into our bodies almost. Um, but uh, for for certain people, patriotism is conditional on the results or on the, on, on whatever is going on at the given moment. So you are a patriot. If X, Y, and Z is going on that you like, or you are a patriot, if you behave in a way that is praiseworthy and self-sacrificing as a citizen. And that is a very controlling definition of patriotism. It seems to me. Well, it's also the opposite of being a patriot is someone who hates their country. And one of the great freedoms we actually have in the United States is to express our dislike intensely of our own country and its own policies. That's obviously a, a that's a great freedom that we have. But to, to use it as a political bludgeon, which is what Biden clearly has a habit of doing, has a different effect, right? Because I can love my country and not agree to wear a mask everywhere as a kind of religious symbol, as, as those on the left have uh, are telling us we need to. I can love my country and look at what, you know, something like the 1619 Project says about its origins and completely disagree with that and still be a patriot. And I don't like, I didn't like this during, you know, post 9-11, uh, it was much more on the right that you saw patriotism being used as as a bludgeon, and and anyone who raised objections to you know sort of civil liberties violations that might be going on um, uh, that the government might be doing for towards citizens was kind of often deemed unpatriotic. It was bad when that happened, and it's bad now when Biden's using it this way. It is not appropriate for the president of the United States to deem his policy disagreements a patriotic issue, and I get really upset by that. It makes me really angry. Um, because I think that that's actually something, it's one of the few ideas that we have that really should be free of partisanship. Because you can be on the left or the right, you can love or hate your country, that's part of what this country is about. And But for the president to say something like that, that's that's not, I, I don't think that's just a little offhand remark. I think that should be, he should be criticized thoroughly for, for using it in that way. Um, let, let's just go back, go back a little bit in time, because I was just looking this up as you were talking. And this is something that Bill Clinton did. In February 1993, when he made his announcement of the of the uh, of his economic program, and he said, "I'm now going to quote uh, a piece by Tom Friedman at the time." Quote: "In telling Americans that it is their patriotic duty to support his economic program, President Clinton is trying to redefine patriotism from pulling together to face a moral threat abroad to paying higher taxes to face an economic threat." at home. So this is yet another example of a Democrat trying to redefine patriotism as uh, a, as a, as the quality that is necessary if you are to be a good citizen by supporting his specific program. Um, It also strikes me, aside from it being a perversion of the idea of patriotism, um, if you're 
trying to argue about the merits of a policy or a behavior or whatever, it's kind of a conversation ender. You do it because it's patriotic. Okay, I guess. What is it? You know, I don't want, you know, I don't want to not be patriotic. (laughs) I mean, so, so let's, so generally speaking, you would say that flag waving and using patriotism as a political symbol is this, or this is what, what certainly is the cliche is, is something that is endemic on the right, not on the left, right? Where's your flag pin? Uh, you're not wearing your flag pin now. It's th- December. Why aren't you wearing a flag pin? It's that you know after 9/11 or um, Trump's uh, rhetoric over the last three or four years, which is interesting because of course he came into office saying this country stinks and everything is terrible and we've done everything badly and we're stupid. Our leaders are stupid and you, they're mistreating you and all of that. And then he walked around saying those other people they hate America, right? Now, by the way, I, I'm not. But, but he did leave yeah. saying he did leave saying America stinks too. Right, but I. I by the way, it's not that I. I, I want to get into the ways in which you know it's rich for Biden to be throwing around terms like patriotism when he is also buying into ideas about the United States that are by definition unpatriotic, which we can get to in a minute. Um. But you'd say that patriotism, you know, it's the last refuge of a conservative scoundrel, right? That's what, not not a liberal scoundrel. That's not, but that's where maybe that idea is is wrong. Um, that love of country, uh, which I think George Orwell said, love of country is very nearly the only pure emotion I possess. That um, love love of country is something to be used as a weapon against people it's a way of getting people who might not agree with you to say well if you love your country you know that kind of if you love your country you'll wear a seatbelt now there are good reasons to wear a seatbelt and it's really good to wear a seatbelt because you don't want to be you don't want to die you don't want other people in your car to die you don't want to like burden the healthcare system with your accident and all of that but that is the kind of thing that you could very easily hear hear people say, you know. And there was some of this rhetoric during the at the worst moments of the pandemic where it was like, it's patriotic. This is sort of a version of what Biden said to Craig Melvin, not to see your mother. You're doing that not only for her, but for the country. You're you're not seeing your mother, even though she's aged and alone. Uh, because you don't want to spread the virus, and spreading the virus is a collective act. And so, you know, if, if it doesn't matter if your mother is, you know, dying of loneliness, you're doing something noble by refusing to see her. Well, but that's that's actually the point, right? They, they there's a way that the left is very skilled at redefining um, terms and using phrases that are that are difficult to argue against. As, and this it made me think of this when when Abe you said you know who who doesn't want who who would claim not to be patriotic? Uh, it was like the Violence Against Women Act. So if you were opposed to some of the provisions in the act, they're like, so you're for violence against women? I mean, it's it's clever, right? The, the Republicans do it with the death tax, right? This their the ways of branding. But this upset is is more upsetting because what it's doing is two things. It's establishing a threat, um, uh, uh, trying to kind of exploit the risk or threat of something 
in order to tap into a deeply rooted, as you said earlier, John, a deeply rooted feeling, a good, healthy feeling people should have about the place they come from and, and how they feel about their country and exploiting it for political gain. It's, it's, it's craven. And the reason it's upsetting is that I think it shifts. Uh, Biden, I don't think, said it to... to to think to, to prompt half the country to feel unpatriotic. I think he just doesn't care. Like the word just doesn't really have a meaning anymore, but it should. And this is the kind of thing where when we talk about, you know, how we declining faith in institutions, cynicism about political leaders, this kind of language actually matters, in my opinion, in terms of how our leaders talk to us about our country, because right. we do have a history in this country of rooting out un-American activities. We had an entire commission and committee in the House of Representatives in the mid 20th century that did just that. There is a history of taking this kind of idea too far. And I, I just don't I don't like it being used as a kind of policy tool on the left, um, especially because, as you say, John, it's, it's incredibly hypocritical given some of their other positions. Right. So if you grow this out, if you sort of, again, backdated, then further back from Bill Clinton in 1993, I guess you have the sort of the, the animating document would be John F. Kennedy saying at his inaugural, ask not what your country can do for you, ask rather what you can do for your country. Now, if you think about that, that is something that no politician would say today. Um, And it is kind of a shocking thing to say, in fact, if you parse it out, which is, what does it even mean to say you, ordinary Joe, listening to your president give his inaugural address, having won a you know razor thin victory by stealing votes in Cook County? Um, what does it what does it mean that this guy who is the rich son of a bootlegger, gangster, lover of Nazi Germany, is telling you that you should? do things, sacrifice yourself for your country. But it was a different time. It was a different moment. We were 15 years out of World War II, the greatest collective effort uh, the United States has ever made to save the world. We were still in the grips and nowhere near the depths of the Cold War as yet, where we were in a kind of titanic, moral, ideological struggle with a genuinely evil counterforce. And so the notion that there was a kind of collective responsibility uh, because of these this, these existential threats that America had faced over the over the previous two decades, it wasn't a shocking thing to say. And of course, it's become a famous piece of rhetoric because liberals just love it. Because once that was no longer the case, or you could take that and then you could say, well, maybe it's not about the Second World War. Maybe it's not about the Cold War. Maybe it is about Medicare. Maybe it is about you know, uh, head start. Maybe it is about like, this is what you can do for your country. If you're ordinary Joe person is pay a lot of taxes. What else are you supposed to do for your country? I mean, the only way you enlist in the military in 1961 is to join up as a kid, right? When you're at, 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 a, at a male and you're 18, what are you supposed to do for your country? You know, what you're supposed to do for your country in a self-governing democracy is be a self-governing person. Take care of your family. Take care of your, be part of your community. Uh, vote, you know, uh, be civically minded and participate in the economic and spiritual and, uh, you know, and sort of um, communitarian life of the country. 
but you're not supposed to do for your country. That is a that is a total misapprehension and misunderstanding of America. But it was like Ted Sorensen's soaring rhetoric. So 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 everybody loved it. So now here we are, sixty years later. And Biden is telling everybody that that the unnecessary wearing of a facial covering for the purposes of virtue signaling to people who clearly don't care about being virtuous, particularly, uh, is a is is your obligation as a citizen and as a person who loves their country. I mean, it it, it would be absurd. It is kind of like we've gone from fighting fascism in the 20th century to like. Michael Scott on the office is threat level midnight with Biden telling us we have to unnecessarily wear a mask. But it is there's there's a mission creep problem here, too. Right. If that message resonates, it's going to be used for other things. I mean, we've already seen it used for economic policy. Now it's masking. What I mean, what's next? What's what's the next patriotic duty? Infrastructure. Infrastructure. Exactly. Infrastructure (laughs) Infrastructure is patriotism. And then you redefine infrastructure as being whatever it is, whatever big government program you want. Right. So therefore, you know. I, I do think a large part of the story of um, why we're um, as divided as we are in the country and have been, you know, increasingly so now um, over the course of several presidencies um, has to do with the fact that with the global bipolarity of the Cold War over, um, that kind of dynamic turned inward uh, in in countries in, in, instead of playing out um, across the, the globe, the, 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 the split happened sort of here. I mean, I think that's true. And also the, um, uh, the failure of the country to come to a consensus on, a, in the end, though, at the beginning, it looked like there was one, a sort of post 9-11 consensus about the threat faced from, you know, Islamo-fascism and Islamist terrorism that that we were sort of together on it and then we sh- and then we pulled apart and shattered on it. Um, that, yeah, there always has to be a force and a counterforce in people's heads. Like, it's, it's very hard for people to live otherwise, I guess. Um, but we should probably get to the question of what it means for a Democrat in 2021 to claim patriotic duty when uh, when the key messages of their party's cultural flank are uh, to you know pull out the Ameri- the the grounds for American patriotism at the root. But before we do that, I want to talk to you guys about these amazing economic numbers we're seeing. You know, six point four percent growth annually, six percent unemployment, everything going sort of like gangbusters. Even though Joe Biden said that he he inherited a country with a house on fire, and guess what? Not only did the fire go out, but apparently we have six percent growth solely because of Joe Biden. Do we? No. And you would know that if you were reading the internet materials provided by the people at the Bonson Group, that two point eight billion dollar uh, financial management and services firm. Um, headed by David Monson, who produces uh, the DCToday.com and DividendCafe.com, the uh, clearest explications of how politics, policy, the Fed, the Treasury, um, uh, the investment uh, community, and uh, and the kind of the the international uh, world of financial bubbles all interact and. 
uh, both uh, lead us to understand what we should do with our money and what maybe what the government should be doing with its money um, and lead us to uh, critical understandings of the ways in which uh, we are maybe going down the wrong road toward, you know, inflation and decay and not toward that we're, we're on a way to a boom and how, what, what, what the boom's effects are, are really very unclear and we need to, you know, watch them day by day. And that's what David Bonson does at the dctoday.com and weekly at dividendcafe.com. So please look them up, take a look, read them. I read them with profit and that's the Bonson group, your antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services industry. So, um, this morning, I noticed in Playbook, which is produced by Politico, something about how Mitch McConnell is going to double down on the culture war by uh, asking the Department of Education, the Biden Department of Education, either uh, do I to remove from its guidance to schools something involving the 1619 project or to... Okay, <clears throat> so sorry, you need a little ahead. bit of background on yes. this. So <clears throat> 1619 project, our audience knows, is a media product the New York Times produced, uh, self-styled to reframe our historical narrative. Um, it was a, a piece of narrative. Uh, it was historically challenged. Historians have challenged it. That has not prevented schools from adopting the teacher's resources that were provided by the New York Times to schools to add it to the curriculum. It's been a part of a historical curricula in schools across this country now for the better part of a year and a half, two years. Uh, and this, well, I think two weeks ago or a week ago, something like that, the education department produced some guidance to, I believe, uh, institutions of higher education, but I could be wrong, could be broader than that. Nevertheless, it tethered grants grant applications to uh, the adoption of and de demonstrated adoption of some of the theses, both in the 1619 Project and by critical race theorists, most notably the work of Ibram X. Kendi. And um, conservatives, uh, the only part that they've played in this is that they've noticed it. Right. Uh, so Mitch McConnell and 37 senators on the uh, GOP side of the aisle are calling on the Education Department to block this uh, proposed rule. And uh, according to Politico, um, Mitch McConnell is leaning into the culture wars. It's the latest turn in the culture wars. He's throwing red meat to his base. They have pounced. It's a trifecta of trite, cliched, partisan hack journalism on display in what is essentially the which is which is a thesis that we that all of us I think have adopted now, which is that it's not culture warring until Republicans notice. But at no, which point it becomes no, aggressive. No, you're you're you're, you're, you're pouncing. <laughs> on, on, on playbook, you're, it, I mean, <laughs> Rothman pounces. Here is why it, this is no is absolutely right because there was a way, and actually a much savvier way. If you want to get this stuff into, uh, if you want to get this money funneled to uh, critical race theory consultants and get you know the sixteen nineteen project in the hands of kindergartners everywhere you wouldn't directly cite it. So by citing it in the rule, they called it a landmark, 1619 Project, a landmark work, landmark work. They cite Ibram Kendi. They cite that as, I think, a gauntlet thrown down. Like, look, this is the direction we're going to take this. And right now, it's just a small amount of funding, right? They're, they're basically saying, we want to encourage social studies uh, to, places to spend money on this kind of curriculum. 
But it's that's the foot in the door, because the idea down the line is to transform the way that we teach civics and the history of this country uh, from K through 12. So this this is a kind of it is a form of indoctrination in the same way that, you know, radicals for a long time have claimed that teaching that, that this country is a good free place where you're lucky to have won life's lottery to be born in is also a kind of, you know, ideological conditioning. But this, they put that in there for a very specific reason. It's part of the Biden administration's broader approach to race. Uh, they've talked about it a lot. And every time, uh, Noah's right, every time someone notices it, then they act shocked, shocked. What are you talking about? <laughs> but okay, it's in but, there and it, right. it's, it's the beginning of a larger project because it's not a huge amount of money that they that, that would initially get spent, but they want to get that foot in the door. Okay, so so around about you know when I was growing up, when I was a teenager in the 1970s, patriotism was not in good odor. It was in bad odor culturally. You were not supposed to be a patriot. America was a terrible place, according to its elites, for the most part. Uh, it was. It had been savage toward the peace-loving hippies. It had, uh, you know, it was investigating. Uh, FBI was, you know, doing terrible things through its COINTELPRO program, investigating uh, leftist groups. Um, you know, uh, cops, interestingly enough, were also considered bad. Uh, we were mean to Cuba. We were mean to North Vietnam. Um, and, you know, grow, growing up in the 1970s, it was much more prevalent that people would say the American dream has turned into a nightmare or there is no American dream. America is terrible, uh, which is one of the reasons that people were so shocked at the power of the Reagan coalition and the size of Reagan's victory in 1980, because it was actually the bubbles. People seem to think that, you know, oh, we're only in our silos now and all of that. But of course, uh, international transmission of local trends and things like that was much more difficult then because there was no internet. You couldn't, you know, you you could only read the Salt Lake City paper if you got it in your hands. You didn't know what was going on elsewhere. And people in the, you know, in the sort of America's capitals, right? Uh, New York, Washington, Boston, places like that had no idea what was going on. Uh, in the heart of the country, and were absolutely staggered to discover that. Uh, enormous numbers of people were not happy that we lost the Vietnam War because they think we should have won the Vietnam War, for example, and that we tied our hands behind our back, sent almost 60,000 people to die there without allowing them the victory that they should have won, which was an attitude that came as a total blazing shock to people. So I'm only bringing this up as a as a, this, a predicate to, but, to what to what's going on now, but this is a this is a really important point that people should understand because what this effort is a is a one example of many that I think we're going to see with this administration is an attempt to codify and mainstream that position. And so I just want to read really briefly some of the language of the rules. It says that the rule would allocate federal funding for education contractors who work to improve K through twelve education. So the the improvement comes quote to teach about systemic marginalization, biases, inequities, discriminatory policies and practices in American history to promote racially, ethnically, culturally, and linguistically responsive teaching and learning practices. Everyone well, knows specifically, what that means. Very specifically that it, it's not even a little bit vague. It tells applicants to demonstrate how they propose to teach what you just cited, the systemic marginalization, biases, inequalities, along the lines of the examples cited. And the examples cited were Kendi's work and the 1619 Project. None of it's vague. Right. And if now, it's all not controversial, 
Why not defend the premise? But as what, opposed to mounting this full court chin stroking assault on the obsessive cranks who just read the thing. My point, the larger point here is that this is not patriotic, whatever it is. And if you support its foundations and believe the truth of the 1619 Project, patriotism is either an evil or a it's either an evil or a, de- or a delusion but because America is a terrible place according to this. Hey, but, the, but, but the more radical redefinition of patriotism um, that, that the left engages in is not about masks or taxes. Um, it is when they say things like Colin uh, Kaepernick by kneeling or by denouncing the 4th of July or whatever else – this is he. This is a an example of true patriotism. This is how you show love of country. But it doesn't make sense in their own terms because okay, so this was said during the protest of the of the Iraq War and stuff like that, which is dissent is patriotic. This is the United States. We get to say what we think, you know, f- without you know without worrying that the government is going to come down on us. <clears throat> Using our free speech is an example of what makes America great. This is not something <clears throat> that the critical race theorists and the systemic racism believers believe. They believe that this is an unfree country that is governed by a series of, of ideas and unconscious biases that make it systemically not only unfair, but murderous toward a certain population of people. Why should anybody be patriotic about such a horrible, monstrous place that was evil the year before it it announced that it found itself in 1620, right? It's well, yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say, and and the project is though what I think Abe is describing, and we know this because read the children's books that these folks put out. There's a new one coming out that that Nicole Hannah Jones uh, is is coming out with as part of the, uh, the 1619 Project extended product line. Um, Ibram Kendi's written a anti racism for babies book. Look at those books. I've read them. I've looked at the ones that are available because I'm interested in how they're teaching it. That is exactly the message. And I think the argument, while this is obviously a long march to power for the people who believe it, they won't feel that this country is something they can be proud of until they've captured the institutions, rewritten the history, done all the things that we know, especially as Abe laid out in his wonderful piece about revolutions, the things that radicals and revolutionaries demand in order to meet the the bar they've set for themselves. And that's what this is a very small part of a broader project. But they still won't because the project does not admit of the possibility of positive change in other words if you're gonna if you're gonna look at the american experiment and you're gonna say the whole point about it is that it's 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 shot through with sin and evil slavery uh the treatment of the native americans the treatment of the chinese as they were you know as they were laying the railroad track you know whatever what however you want to slice it right it's shot through with bad behavior and all that and every corrective to that, every corrective to the evil is contained within the documents that founded the country. So the the cognitive dissonance of slavery in the United States was eventually met with a with a, the bloodiest war that we've ever fought 
you know, brother against brother, state against state, in order to, uh, you know, solidify the union and end this, you know, unspeakable evil of slavery. Uh, and everything else that has come through over time uh, is the result of the fact that in that that the Constitution, the Declaration, all that was written uh, as you know as the instruction manual that could be used 240 years later to correct injustices, present day, past, all of that. They don't believe that. No, but this is very important. That's an important thing to dwell on, and it's something that I wrote about for the blog, because the for the whole of the civil rights movement, basically, this fundamental premise has underlined all of its activism, which is that, yes, these inequalities were baked into our founding documents. Those same founding documents provide the tools by which we can liberate ourselves and extirpate those evils from society. No, now, I wrote this. In New York Times, and I said, you know, what happened? Where did this idea go? And New York Times opinion contributor Jamal Bowie came out and said, you know, you didn't stumble across this idea. This is this is boilerplate civil rights stuff. I said, I know. Where did it go? I'm not the one who abandoned this idea. You guys abandoned this idea. Why did why have you given up on this central premise of civil rights, um, basic civil rights organization and civil rights activism? Because they don't, uh, that's the, the Audre Lorde quote, with the, which, which uh, a, a lot of people like to cite, right? You can't build, we can't rebuild the master's house with the master's tools. You know, the, the, the idea that if, ever, if you accept the idea that those documents, although founded at a time where, of imperfection in terms of applying their principles, are nevertheless valuable in the way that John just laid out, then you, you keep working. That's within the system. And this is another, I, I think- so no the answer is, is, sorry to interrupt no, you, no, the answer is, is that the movement has been co-opted by Marxist premises. Yes, exactly, exactly. Which is as opposed to- you know, It's a different system. Yeah, that <laughs> that, that everything needs to be dismantled. Yes, exactly. Right. Re, it's, it's interesting because I, 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 just something occurs to me, let me just play it out a little bit because it's a, it's a weird idea. But um, uh, the civil rights movement- was an effort to say, we want America to apply to us equally. So we want the same rights. We want the same obligation, whatever. We, this has been, it's unequally enforced. Uh, Power and citizenship and all that are unequally distributed. Just give us our due as Americans. You know, uh, desegregate schools, uh, you know, uh, don't create two separate everything, you know, and then we, we will, we will be judged not on the basis of the color of our skin, but the content of our character, right? So that was the, that was almost inarguable. Part of the problem in, in the resistance to the civil rights movement is that there was no intel, you know, um, intelligible response to this among segregationists and people like that, except that's not the way we live now. It's no fair. You know, we don't want it to, we have our own ways of doing things here. That's not an answer to the thing. It's like, we're Americans, you're Americans, you have these rights. We don't really have all of them. And let's like, everybody have the same thing. Right. And this, yeah. yeah, go ahead. No, I was, I was gonna just going to say, say I, I misquoted Audre Lorde. It's like, because okay. I said rebuild. It's actually, she said you can't dismantle the master's house oh, with right. the master's tools. So, which actually speaks to Noah's right. Marxist point. But go ahead. Okay. Sorry. Then the civil rights movement and, you know, the voice of Martin Luther King and all that gets 
you know, this then becomes, uh, you know, the the most important cultural uh, sort of force of the 1960s and uh, 50s and 60s in creating not revolutionary change, but evolutionary change exactly in the manner that you would wish it to, to happen, even though it maybe it happened a little too slowly. At which point, having achieved this, then for reasons that are way too complicated to go into here, either they lost heart, civil rights activists, or they found the results unsatisfying, or, you know, what they wanted were the, they wanted to see the results, you know, sort of like they wanted, they wanted it to be, okay, this has happened. And now why results are going to happen? And that, well, there, isn't and there a fourth, is, isn't there a fourth? What's that? idea here which is one that's probably extremely controversial even to say but that the movement is that it's it has become a victim of its own successes right well so of course so if you if you're if you're actually if you actually achieve what you want to achieve i mean just just to be a little solipsistic here you know my mother ran an organization called the committee for the free world she started in 1980 or 81 at the height of the you know at the height of the cold war but as reaganism was starting and then it was, you know, it was basically an anti-communist umbrella group. And then uh, the Soviet Union fell. And she closed it down because there was no Soviet Union anymore. Well, if you're the civil rights movement, okay, so granted, there's a lot of cleanup to be done. Things keep going on. People do screw around with voting rights, uh, you know, or do whatever they want to do. And so there needs to be, there need to be watchdogs and stuff like that. But I mean, the way to look at it there would be, you know, like uh, there, there was one mission for the Anti-Defamation League in 1915 when Leo Frank was lynched, and it has an entirely different mission in 20 in 2021. Um, but here's what I was thinking: so as a result, since they have nowhere to go, they then start doubling down and getting more and more and more radical. In reverse, let's talk just for a little bit about the gay rights movement. So the gay rights movement, which 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 arose really, I mean, there were there was a sort of gay rights movement around the Mattachine Society in the forties and fifties, which was just you know, stop arresting us, stop beating us up, you know, we're we're not doing anything so terrible. What's the matter with you? Well, to decriminalize in the law, right? To decriminalize in the law. Okay. So, but then in the nineteen sixties, as the sort of the the cultural revolution, the American cult, not the Chinese cultural revolution, takes place. Free love you know, all of that sort of um, uh, anti-bourgeois values and the idea that, you know, you need to do things in transcendent fashion. Um, uh, gay rights activists, the earliest gay rights activists, actually advocated for revolutionary behavior. They wanted to destroy the family. They wanted to, you know, upend civilized society. They they pr- they praised, uh, you know, um, what would you call it, uh, uh promiscuity. Uh, they said this was a, a not only an alternate lifestyle, but a superior lifestyle and all of that. Right. And, uh, and uh, with the exception of the, of the, of the movement stuff surrounding AIDS, whatever movement that was kind of hit a wall in the 1980s after, after certain types of laws were relaxed or, or attracted or new ones, affirming basic civil rights for 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 gay people were passed 
Andrew Sullivan and others then reached into their bag of, you know, and said, let's move right. What we want as what we want for gay rights is the same rights. Everybody, we want to be married. We want to have children. Well, before adoption, yeah. the adoption rights actually came before marriage and in some ways could, you know, for people who oppose right. them seemed more Leverage. radical, but right. actually was a was a very right. positive, right. conservative, institutionalizing force for right. gay couples. Right. But so my, my, my point here is that here you have an exact, you know, what I think is, is arguably, and I'm not now talking about trans stuff or what happens after gay marriage and all that. I'm saying that this giant step forward was taken in the, in the realm of, of, of gay rights by the embrace of relatively traditional American social structures. And what we have here in the civil rights movement in 2021 is the embrace of ever more radical, uh, anti-American, philosophically, philosophically, politically anti-American ideas that say that America is bad you can't redefine patriotism as a force that believes that the country that it's about is bad. That is, you know, peace is war, you know, freedom is slavery, whatever. I mean, that is, or that is literally Orwellian. So, I mean, but the way that happens, I mean, the way it happens usually is that it's not necessarily the, the people who are talking about tearing the country down who defend their own ideas as, as patriotic. It's, it's the cover that they're given by sympathetic, you know, media types who then say this is patriotic. Well, and that's, that's an important point because there's an Achilles heel for these, uh, for these radicals. And that's this concept of whiteness. They use whiteness and white supremacy all the time. We, we, you know, if you follow this stuff, that's, that's, it's just all the way out there. I mean, I see it on, you know, threads that parents, when parents are discussing school stuff, it pops up, people deploy it. Um, the problem, of course, is that the way P- Americans actually live their lives, that concept is becoming less and less potent because inter- racial intermarriage is booming. You know, people don't live, everybody, lots of people have friends from all kinds of backgrounds and races. We love our friends regardless of their skin color. That is a continued, that in practice, the, the pragmatic approach, I think, of just the lived experience, another phrase that radicals like to use, the lived experience of most Americans doesn't comport with this, you know, idea of, you know, because of the color of your skin, you are guilty of sins committed hundreds of years ago and are somehow still an oppressor. Right. Guys, are you still going to the post office? Are you still paying full price for postage? Thanks to Stamps.com, you don't have to anymore. Mail and ship anytime, anywhere, right from your computer. Send letters, ship packages, and pay less, a lot less. With discounted rates from the U.S. Postal Service, UPS, and more, Stamps.com saves businesses thousands of hours and tons of money every year. Stamps.com brings the services of the U.S. Postal Service and UPS right to your computer. It's a must-have for any business, whether you're a small office sending invoices, a side hustle, an Etsy shop, shipping out orders, or just navigating our hybrid work life. Stamps.com can handle it all with ease, no matter over 1 million businesses. No wonder over 1 million businesses choose Stamps.com for their mailing and shipping. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, Anywhere you want to send, once your mail is ready, just schedule a pickup or drop it off. It's that simple. With Stamps.com, you get discounts up to 40% off post office rates and up to 60%, 66% off US, UPS shipping rates. 
Stop wasting time going to the post office. Go to stamps.com instead. There is no risk. And with my promo code commentary, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in commentary. That's stamps.com, promo code commentary, stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. So can I, um, can I, since we're talking about, uh, you know, racial prejudice and all that, um, uh, I, I want to take the privilege, uh, point of privilege to talk about something that really affects almost no one in the country, 23,000 kids in New York City schools. Yesterday, uh, there are eight selective public high schools in, in the New York City public school system uh, where there are uh, about a million kids are in the New York City school system. There are eight selective high schools. They have, I think, 9,000 places per class across these eight schools. So there are about 36,000 to 40,000 kids in these eight schools of the whole system. And since 1971, these schools, uh, admission to these schools has been uh, statutorily uh, at the state level uh, has been uh, the province of a test called the SHSAT. Anybody can take it. Grades don't count. Teacher recommendations don't count. Nothing counts. Just the result of this test. And that is how it has been since 1971. Some of these schools are very famous. Stuyvesant, Bronx Science, Brooklyn Tech. You might have heard of those. 50 years uh, this this system came into being. So over the last couple of years, there's been a lot of heart sickness uh, from people who have noticed that, uh, that almost no black kids in particular are getting into these schools. Um, and that, uh, for example, uh, the St- Stuyvesant High School admitted nine kids to its uh, to its incoming freshman class next year, uh, and so this is then viewed uh, as a kind of as the terrible failure of the system. It's terrible. The test is bad. It's not fair. It needs to be replaced. It's so unfair. So I did some digging. Uh, into the what happened digging. I just looked at the table. That's that's the kind of digging I do because I'm so determined as a dogged researcher that I actually can manage to look at a at a at a chart. Um. So let, let me just go through this a little bit. All right. Twenty eight percent of the kids admitted are white, four percent black. In New York City. It's kind of amazing. 26% of the population of the city is white. 26% is black. 26% is Latino. And then the other 37, 38% are a mix of a lot of other things. Asians make up 12% of the city's population. Uh, 23,000 kids applied, uh, of whom 18.1% were admitted. 4,200 were admitted. Okay. I'm sorry. So it's 4,200. It's not... Not 9,000. I got these numbers wrong. Okay. So if you add uh, whites, blacks, and Latinos together, uh, they will constitute around 37% of the kids at these eight schools. Guess how many kids are Asian who passed the test and got uh, placements? 53.7%. Remember, Asians make up 12% of the city's population. 
But it's not just that. 35% of the applicants for these positions were Asian, compared to 18% white and 18% black. So not only did Asians get admitted at this like insanely higher rate, they were twice as likely as other ethnic groups to attempt to place themselves in these eight schools. Okay? Asians are a minority population, smaller than African Americans and smaller than Latinos in the city of New York. They make up 12%. And certain populations of them are poorer or among the poorest people in the city. The New York Times is now saying there's something diseased here because black kids don't get into Stuyvesant. This test is by definition colorblind. We now know it's colorblind because it, it is by definition, right? No, one, no one's color is there except you have to fill it out on a form. But it's a test. Everybody takes the same test. And Asian kids who are often children of immigrants who don't speak particularly good English, whose parents are working class at best and all this, just blow through this test the way Jewish kids three or four generations ago, blew through the New York City public schools. You have two ways of looking about this, looking at this or thinking about this. The test works because you know what? White people aren't privileged by it. They're not privileged by it. Asian kids are, Asian kids outdo white kids, you know, at double the rate. And they are, they are minorities. But I guess we don't think that a minority is anything but a black person or a Latino person. Um, and the other thing, and John McWhorter said this on, on Twitter is why are these, why are these numbers so calamitous? Well, you know, in the sixties and seventies and eighties uh, in New York city, intermediate and middle schools, uh, there were, there were tracks there were the more you know intellectually minded kids or the kids who looked like they were profiting um, more readily from academic instruction were taught better and had you know it's a classic education system where there was you know uh, kids were tracked and 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 uh, to each according to his need uh, uh, got got the kind of education that they might have wanted and that was all dismantled in the name of racial equity this is we're talking about 30 years ago 25 30 years ago because that made people feel bad made kids feel bad that there were that there were levels and tracking and all that so that was ended which essentially meant that uh, kids from uh, poor backgrounds, uh, African-American, Latino kids from poor backgrounds uh, whose families did not have, um, for whom education was not the central concern of their lives and uh, and were themselves uneducated and all of that, uh, did not have teachers who showed them how to read and did not have teachers who showed them how to take a test and did not have teachers who made it their mission as was, as my father tells in his in his book, Making It, you know, it's teachers who grabbed this little kid by the hand who only spoke Yiddish and said, here, we're going to teach you how to speak proper English. Here, we're going to teach you how to navigate the educational system. Like, uh, he would not have made it. You know, he ended up going to Columbia on a scholarship. His sister went to Brooklyn College because she didn't have anybody like that. And she graduated at 14. She was very smart. But the whole point I'm making is that without a system that allows people to learn and cares about them learning 
or has parents who want them to learn or something like that. What did you, what do you expect from these kids? So what you're going to do in having, having destroyed the capacity for them to learn in middle school, you are now going to destroy high school. I mean, that is the desire. The desideratum here is to say the test is bad because the results are bad. But the results are only bad if your presumption is that the results are supposed to precisely mirror the ethnic makeup of the city. The fact that it is disproportionately a benefit to minority kids doesn't matter. And that's the end of my monologue. Anybody want to react? Well, the the dismantling of gifted programs in these schools is hugely important because that's one of the arguments that the anti-racist brigade makes is that, you know, we, it's not fair to, to, to have any testing or any sort of ranking because, you know, those are inherently racist because the outcome isn't racist, right? This is the equity model. It's got to have an equal outcome for us to accept that it's actually an equal process. Um, but that was a way of identifying talented kids from all backgrounds. And did it did it favor one race over the other, depending on the school you were in? Probably. I mean, you know, maybe a white teacher would be more likely to see potential in a white student. But that's not how it played out in practice. And actually, John McWhorter's uh, sort of little Twitter thread on this was really interesting because he's like, those gifted and talented programs, which start very young, are much more valuable than all this arguments that, that a lot of uh, critics of testing on the left make, uh, that, that it's not fair because... Uh, African-American students and their families can't afford the test prep that's required to get through these tests. Well, neither, to your point, John, neither can uh, many of these Asian-American families, but they do. They find a way to do it. There's a culture about education in that community that is not the same as in the white community, the Hispanic community, the black community. So part of this is cultures of uh, what, what culturally people value. And nobody likes to talk about culture because that starts to get into, oh, you're judging one is superior to the other. I'm not because I actually think the outcome of these tests show, as you said, that they are fairly race blind. So, but equity will not allow for that kind of ranking. And that's happening across gifted and talented and, and admissions only schools all across the country, San Francisco, DC, Virginia, all of these schools are facing this. And it'll be interesting to see if a lot of them that took the test away for the pandemic year will reinstate them next year. I just find it very frightening. I mean, obviously it's frightening uh, if you, you know, if you follow our, our, our logic and thinking on, on these subjects, but I mean, not to get sentimental, but like, these are kids, these are kids, they're 13 years old. Like this is the difference between whether they're going to live a life, uh, that is, you know, uh, where, uh, they are rewarded for the fact that they put their nose to the grindstone as, as Christine was sort of talking about yesterday, like deferred gratification, uh, had parents who said work, 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 please their parents did what they were supposed to do often go to uh go to schools in their own uh in their own languages after school um it's a very stressful life it's a difficult life that they live they deserve the reward of getting as as good an education as possible and they do not deserve to be penalized because uh because basically um, you know, liberals are sad that the results of these tests don't conform with what they would want a nice United States of Benetton school to look like. You know what? Too bad. And again, I can't say this enough. This is exactly what happened to Jews in the first half of the 20th century. There are too many of them. They're too good at school. Who knows why? Nobody really understands it. 
but you know, we've got to create all of these rules, admissions rules in colleges of vague principles and doctrines and ideas about uh, character and, uh, you know, community and all of that to give us the power to design our schools so that these, this weird alien horde doesn't take over. Listen, so before it was called equity, it was called social justice and social justice maxims have abandoned the sort of Rawlsian notion that the only way to have a true equitable distribution of goods is to be blind to the recipients of their outcomes. You can't be blind. A morally appropriate outcome has to be aware of the groups that you're advantaging, more importantly, aware of the groups you're disadvantaging. Um, groups need to have collective justice associated with you know, their retributions. The, the people who have advantages unearned as a result of their accidents of birth need to be robbed of those advantages. This is the theory that's operative here. And far be it for me to be optimistic, but there's opportunity for opponents of this sort of thing to go back to the Politico playbook culture warring thing. It ends with a sort of curious observation that can't be ignored. Quote, the the anti-1619 sentiment is uniting one of the oddest coalitions in politics, McConnell conservatives. Centrists like Damon Linker, who's a Democrat who's been critical of this sort of thing, and anti-woke socialists. Hmm. Sort of a chin-stroking moment there, right? Hey, there's, you there's, there's no opposition something. for this among polite circles, and yet it is uniting this coalition that has otherwise no ideological affinities that they share. Curious. But Noah, you essentially just enlisted John Rawls in the conservative project. That's how crazy all this has gotten. That's a central premise of my book. My book against uh, social justice. This is the preeminent theorist behind social justice ideology. And he has become an obstacle to the sort of programs that social justice activists, self-styled social justice activists seek. He created this idea. His theory was that to have these perfect enlightened institutions that redistribute social and economic goods. This is all a thought experiment. You needed to have something called the veil of ignorance, which they operate behind in order so that they couldn't possibly advantage consciously or otherwise uh, groups or individuals that they might want to advantage um, just by virtue of the fact that they're human beings. This all has to be blind and blindness is morally uh, abhorrent to the modern social justice activist, because how can you have an equitable distribution of social and economic goods if you don't know who you're helping and who, more importantly, who you're hurting? Right. And that gets to the conditionality point at the beginning I was saying about, about patriotism, right? In that sense, one of the most uh, pregnant things said on this subject was when Michelle Obama in 2008 said her husband's success in primaries marked the first time in her life that she had ever been proud of her country. Right. And that was a very remarkable thing for her to say, not by the way that she couldn't think it, a that she felt free to say it. But even more important, Michelle Obama grew up in Chicago uh, with a you know very determined uh, father, intact family. Uh, brother became a basketball star and a coach. She went to Princeton. And then went to law school and then became a lawyer and then became a senior official at a, at a, at a hospitals corporation. This country was very, 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 very good to her. And the fact that in 2008, Michelle Obama thought that it wasn't was itself a very telling indication of what, what it is, what is it 
that she wants? What is it that they want from America? You know, what do you want that you're not getting? And that's 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 a, a very hard to answer question. But I got to run here to say this. Trustandwill.com, everybody, because many of you just starting out buying a home, having babies, building wealth. Be sure to add securing your family's future to your to-do list by establishing a will or trust at trustandwill.com. For as little as $39, you can nominate guardians for your children, determine who gets your stuff, plan for future medical care, all from the comfort of your home. Hiring a traditional estate attorney can cost thousands, and using a one-size-fits-all template is not nearly specialized enough. Trust and Will documents are designed by estate planning experts and customized for the state you live in. And with live customer support seven days a week, trustandwill.com's team is available to answer any question you have while setting up your plan. Gain peace of mind at trustandwill.com slash commentary. Get 10% off plus free shipping of your customized legal documents. Don't wait. Go right now. This is really important. Get 10% off plus free shipping at trustandwill.com slash commentary. That's trustandwill.com slash commentary. So we have a weekend coming. It's nice. going to be nice here. What's going on? Anybody doing anything fun? Fun, seeing, fun things. Seeing all my fellow vaccinated friends. Yay. And we're not going to wear our masks to be patriotic because we're all safely vaccinated. So we can... Yes. Abe? Yeah, I have a similarly unpatriotic weekend plan. plan. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, Noah's, Noah, Noah, don't, Noah would say that uh, he, like everybody else, has already been doing this for a year. So he doesn't, he doesn't get to take credit for going around uh, unmasked. But, um, no, I have three yards of mulch coming. That's my weekend. Three yards of mulch. I, I could make a mulch, joke about one of our advertisers, but I will belay that because it's probably it's probably probably a terrible mistake. I have no idea what I'm doing. I think we may drive out to the beach and walk around on a beach because it's warm and it'd be nice to see the ocean. I hope everybody has a wonderful time this weekend, not just the my colleagues here, but everybody who is listening. Uh, we will be back in May, which is to say Monday, which will be which will be the third of May. Uh, and so, thanks for joining us as ever for Abe, Christina, Noah. I'm John Puthortz. Keep the candle burning.